You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike, Pensacon, New Jersey. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. I want to talk about sin and why I think that's encouraging. I believe sin matters because there's great joy to find in confessing it. It takes catching it consciously, though, so that I can really be released. Sort of living into my place within the new humanity that we've been discovering. God seems to insist on, he just really likes co-working with us. This sort of partnership rather than dominance. Even though, of course, God is infinite and we are finite, God's the creator, we're the creature, still God wants this loving exchange and actually insists on it. So God does not want to overpower us, but waits, waits for our meeting, our understanding, our true presence of our true selves. And I think that's what sin keeps us from and why God so wants us to find the freedom in knowing our sin, confessing it, and releasing it. We are created for new life. The Christian life is a life of change. We can never predict what's next. And as I talk about sin this morning, I hope that you hear that, that embrace of change, that call for living into the change. I hope that rings through everything I say. We are a new creation, and we are an ongoing new creation. A new life has begun. I think sin is an encouraging topic because it opens me to this newness over and over again. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that everyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. This co-working with God in our new creation means in the end that we turn away again and again from many ways of being that we learned early in our lives and that we consciously surrender those old ways to God. I think it's a little bit like extracting a splinter. You have to push. Sometimes I used to take a hot needle and dig a little bit around the splinter (laughs) to pluck it out of a child's foot. This obviously cannot be done if the child isn't willing. I've done a lot of 
splinter extracting. You know that guy there, the blonde one over there. He looks a lot like this guy in the front row. He's with his twin brother, Joel, there. We're out at Lake Havasu, where Rod's parents lived when they were alive, and we got to visit and be on the boat and walk across the dock, and somebody always got a splinter. I was taking them out a lot, trying to convince a child to let me hurt them <laughs> to prevent further hurt. I still do it. You might recognize that little tiny guy in the white because he's sitting in the front row today. We still do a lot of splinter extracting. Convincing the kid that it will hurt them a little is just plain old hard work. From C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time to be good. We are all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, or my parentheses is all the ways we learned to try to cope in our deep distress. We have to, we center on that, hoping, in spite of all this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As Jesus said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If you want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. The history of the Christian church is an unfortunate story of a kind of preoccupation with sin in some ways. I don't want to repeat that this morning. In fact, I think I've spent most of my time talking anywhere I've ever talked since I came to know Jesus, trying not to repeat that. But I also want to contradict a watered-down version of Christianity that is only about consolation. I hope you know Jesus as I do, to be very demanding, to do things I don't understand and to absolutely demand that I keep walking along the path with him, as we've been singing about. There is much consolation for us in the arms of the Lord, make no mistake. God will not leave you as you are, however. Change is at the heart of our gospel. It is our good news. There is also desolation, a reckoning with who we are now in our damaged selves, and a meeting with the living God by God's Spirit living in us, moving us into 
new life. There's a real letting go, a true turning around that must happen and happen repeatedly. It is our freedom. So I do think sin matters. Without a personal understanding of sin, we miss the freedom Christ offers. Without a personal experience of naming our sin, we miss any chance of the deep joy forgiveness brings. Without a personal wrestling with sin, we don't stand a chance at being able to forgive ourselves or others. When I was a freshman in college, Anton LaVey came to my university campus. He was the head of the Church of Satan. I was in school in a town just south of San Francisco, the epicenter of that church. As a relatively new Christian, I was scared out of my mind. But I was also determined that I should go and listen. My fantasy was, of was that I would see a dynamic satanic figure. And when this guy walked out on the stage, he impressed me with how really ordinary he was. And what he said was even more surprising in its ordinariness. He basically said, the seven deadly sins are healthy and we ought to practice them regularly. His fundamental message was that sin, as we've learned about it in our culture, this was back in the 70s, we've even gotten better at this, sin doesn't really matter, spiritually speaking. He didn't go into occult stuff, although my research on him told me there were occult practices offered to more advanced members, but for the public, the message was all about how what we had been told was bad is actually good. Wow, that's an old message. You've been misled. Doing what God asks of you is misguided. It's a trick that leaves you not knowing things that you perfectly well should know. Like Adam and Eve in the Genesis Garden, the message is, you're not in any danger if you do as you please. Keep on as you know best. Eat that fruit. This idea that sin is about a trick or a delusion has really intrigued me ever since. It rings true to my personal experience of life and of Jesus. We are too easily tricked into thinking we've got a better idea, a seemingly irresistible idea about how to make our lives better. A colleague of mine, Mark McMinn, a fellow psychologist and a Jesus follower, wrote a book titled Why Sin Matters several years ago. He talks in the beginning of this book about encounters with the writings of Henry Nouwen, and particularly about this book by Henry, The Return of the Prodigal Son. The impact of that painting on Henry himself and on Mark through the book and Henry's reflection on it has fueled my own encounters with the living God. This is the story of all stories I would suggest that Jesus tells. It's the centerpiece story about what God thinks about sin and about us. The Murillo version, this is the one that Henry wrote about, the, the uh, Rembrandt version. And then the little one there is the Murillo version of the same story. That one hangs beside my bed at home. 
I had my own journey away from and back to God that involved a reckoning with images of God as male and with myself as less than because I was female. But that's a story for another time. Today's topic interests me keenly because of my own encounter with Henry Nowen when he was writing The Return of the Prodigal Son. He spoke to a small group at a conference I attended, and so I had this unique opportunity to meet one of the heroes of my own faith, and then to my surprise to end up in an extended conversation with him about our mutual and deep sorrow related to the ways we had sinned in our relationships with friends and loved ones. We admitted to each other our tendency to obsess over our relationships and to uh, we began to talk about how God was meeting us and confronting that very tendency. It was life-changing. I continue to pray about all the things that I discussed that day with Henry, even these many years after his death. I came to understand that my error wasn't at all what I thought it was. It wasn't about what I understood as the seven deadly sins. It was about how I unconsciously used whatever power I had, often unknowingly, to try again and again to save myself or to get one of my intimates to go to the depths of me and save me. God began to make it abundantly clear to me that my sin was deeper and far more corrupt than simply a misuse of my body, although that's always part of it. It was a fundamental and tenacious part of me that was utterly convinced that I had to save myself because I was not worthy of a love that was not earned. The more I wrestled with myself and our unrelenting God, who insisted that I accurately see myself, my true damaged self with its entrenched beliefs that I was unlovable, it was there that I began to see sin from a very different angle. Sin wasn't just the behaviors listed in this traditional categories of the seven deadly sins. It was deeper and far, far more difficult to pin down. It involved every breath I took and every moment of God's seeking me on the horizon to embrace me. And that's still happening today. So today I want to try to look at these traditional labels for our sin in the seven deadly sins and go a little deeper to see the grace that awakes, awaits there. Gluttony. We all know about comfort food. The attempt to feel better by eating is as old as humankind. In my field of psychology, we've linked food to oral fixations stemming from early childhood experiences and needs. It's always more than just food. We celebrate with food. It's a gift. But when we use food in a vain attempt to control others' perceptions of us, or even our perceptions of ourselves, we are in danger. Bulimia, anorexia, you know the names. There are lots of uncomfortable facts out there now about how we demand, about how our demand for certain food damages our entire planet as well as our bodies. Needs are real and we all deal with them, but then there are addictions. It was hunger, at least in part, that turned the prodigal son towards home. Do you hear the contradictions here, the need for us to just sit with this? 
hunger can turn us into gluttons. Hunger was what turned the prodigal son towards home. Maybe we need to listen to our hunger more carefully rather than eat the next helping. Lust is often listed as one of the seven. Actually, it's often listed first. It's the one we think of. This uh, misnomer, I think, is what pops into many of our minds, especially if we've walked around churches very much in our experience. Um, what's underneath an unchecked sexual desire that explodes into using other people's bodies for orgasms? That's the more important question I would contend. Isn't it about sensuality? Isn't it about trying to fill a gap, to have an experience that feels good, and to gain enough power to have it again and again whenever I want? Why would we refrain from a pleasurable experience? I think the key with working with the reality of sin is to admit that our passions are disordered and so we need help, a return to a power greater than ourselves. We need a savior. I think unchastity is a better word for this category. It's the denial of the human inclination to be pure. To be chaste is to be morally pure in our behavior. We think of it in terms of sexual behavior. To be chaste is to refrain, refrain from sexual intercourse outside of marriage. We've all heard that. But that seems way too narrow to me. What's deeper, or maybe to say this more broadly, to be chaste is to be focused on a surrender of our goals for joy. To believe like to put into practice with what we do, that God is with us, loving us, and making joy possible in our lives with him, not on our own trying to find it. Envy. Painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another. And it stirs up this desire to possess the same advantage. If you think you're never envious, then I'd suggest you haven't checked thoroughly enough. I think envy is very hard for us to see in ourselves. We get wedded to certain views of ourselves, and it's then very hard for us to see what lies outside that view that we hold of ourselves, whether it's a negative or a positive view of us. We select from our environment clues or cues that conform to our bias, to our already held belief about ourselves. It's just the way the human brain works. So what's under envy? Go back to the desire to control our joy, to pursue happiness in the ways we've learned, even when they simply do not work. Envy is a sort of obsessive quality that gets going in us, and we get fixated on what someone else has, and that comes to represent to us all that we long for and don't have. And it's a trick. It's another lie. It's an illusion that we buy into. 
Soon we're chasing that thing or sulking about that or fantasizing about that, and we no longer live in the present moment given to us. We miss all the good that is given. We kick our foot away from God's hands as the splinter is just about to be extracted. Anger. I wish this one weren't on the list, to be honest with you. Because I think we really struggle with living life and not either beating ourselves up for our anger and therefore separating ourselves from hope and comfort or indulging anger in a way that is self-destructive and limits our intimate connectivity with others. Anger is one of those emotions that in my world we call secondary. It's not primary. You've all probably said this. Well, yeah, I was mad, but really I was hurt. I was mad, but really I was hurt. Anger, I think, really should be considered more as a signal for change. It can also be an emotion, however, <laughs> that we nurture and protect to our own demise. It's easier to feel anger than to feel the deeper emotion of loss. It makes us feel vulnerable, and thus we feel our utter need for God. So we can stay angry when we really need to grieve or we need to find that place within us that is longing for something, and name it. Greed, taking more than is needed. How do we know how much is needed? That is a really tough question in these here United States. My mom was a really anxious person. My dad wanted to relieve her worries, and one of the ways he thought he could do that was financially. She'd grown up in the Depression. She was very frightened about money. She couldn't let go of worry until my dad had a million dollars in the bank. This is a million dollars in the bank that you do not use. So you have all the rest of the money to do all the things that you need to do, feed your children, clothe them, you know, do all that stuff. It's always this crazy question, right? What is enough? And for my mom, that seemed to help her. But what a tragedy. It took him a while to get that million put away in the 1950s and 60s. And as a result, she was really disconnected to my brother and I through our entire childhoods and on into our adulthoods. <laughs> and my dad had tons of money to dump on us when he died. What good is this? Well, I get to give some of it away. That's pretty fun. But you get my point, right? How much is needed? If we can get to the deeper thing, if my mom could have dealt with her anxiety, she might have lived a very different life, I think a more joyful one. Sloth is the old word. Indolence, I think, is a better word. 
And it has to do with an indifference to the good that is around us. This is the deeper meaning, right? For us, sloth means you're just lazy. You just don't get things done. Uh, it's an avoidance of activity or exertion, this habitual disinclination to what, what were we lamenting about? The getting up. It's hard to get up and get going, especially when Jesus calls for our healing. I work with people who are depressed a lot. I've known my own particular ex uh, struggle with depression as well. And this is not what I'm talking about. Please hear me. This is not about depression. A symptom or a side effect of depression can be the avoidance of activity or what looks on the outside like laziness. However, the inner world of the person who is depressed is far, far, far from inactive. Quite the opposite. There's too much going on in that mind. Too many negative voices that press for isolation and cast blame and shame widely. This is not indolence. Indolence is this deeper inability to look for the good even when there is dark struggle. And we can find help with that deeper inner struggle. But again, God is looking for this partnership with us, this us getting in it with God, this naming. Um, another bit from Lewis, he, he wrote to a friend that he thought might be struggling with the sin of in, indolence. Lewis named his own chief sin as pride but he zeroed in on the key problem with this brokenness of the human spirit in indolence. It supports an indifference to the present moment where God is trying to offer good even when there might be great sorrow, grief, loss, injustice. I think this is really worthy of our consideration. The paradox of the human heart is that we often hold joy and sorrow right together. By the way, one of the first treatments for depression, to go back to that, is to suggest to my, at least when I'm seeing a client in, in a new relationship, is just to go take a walk and also get involved in some social back and forth to try to do something to break the isolation. To get yourself in a new now might be another way to say that. So indolence, this deep inability to see the good. I think God is really glad to help us with sin. Pride. I'd like to think about pride as love turned upside down. It's the capacity to love self to the exclusion of others. And I really keep wrestling with this. In the prodigal, we often see first the behavior. He goes off, he sleeps with prostitutes, he's drunken. He has the audacity to start in the story by asking for his inheritance early before his father's death. But 
isn't it also underneath all that, isn't what's lurking under there, this belief that this prodigal has that he's somehow the exception to the rule, that he can prosper without his father's guidance, without his relationship with his father. He can prosper without the boring monotony of work or kind of an infantile fantasy that life will just roll out gloriously before him as he enjoys every pleasure without hesitation or consideration. That just doesn't make for a life. God knows. Psychological research is almost lopsided when we look at our ability to accurately estimate our own skills, what we can do in the world. It's really comical, I think. We consistently estimate ourselves far more highly than we actually are, even while we suffer from an emotional set or mind kind of warp <laughs> tune that says we're not worthy of love, and yet on this other level, we are constantly overestimating uh, how we function in the world. Uh, let me just give you uh, some funny examples of this. You've probably heard that the vast majority of ourselves, of us, rate ourselves as better than average drivers, right? Do you get the statistical impossibility there? We can't all be above average. Average means most of us, but that's not how we rank ourselves. A million high school students, a million were asked how they rank themselves with their peers, how they got along with their peers. And uh, they all rated themselves as average or above. 60% of them believed they were in the top 10%. 25% believed they were in the top 1%. College professors, one of my old haunts, were asked to rate the quality of their teaching. 2% reported that they were average. 2%. 63% rated themselves as above average, and 25% rated themselves as exceptional. And again, all of this is, of course, statistically impossible. Our capacity for self-love takes on these sort of unconscious, the, 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 these are things we just do to kind of get along in the world. If I thought I was a crappy professor, I probably wouldn't go to school and teach every day. And yet, I think God is calling us to something deeper when he calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's calling us to reorient love so that it doesn't get upside down like it certainly has in our world this capacity to love the self at the exclusion of others. Some of us certainly need to learn more about loving ourselves, but don't do it at the exclusion of others. We have a flagrant example of that in the political arena right now. Don't go there. Try to let God show you what's underneath because I think what we would all find is that underneath our 
elevated assessment of ourselves as drivers or as friends underneath that inflated assessment is this deep longing to be seen for who we really are, to love and receive love in an open, honest, authentic, genuine encounter with another. The inner self still longs for love more than self-love. It's just real. More than our pursuits of happiness, more than our attempts to be good, let's all be the prodigal and return home again and again, begin each day open to the hidden surprises that we will only see when we see our sin. And that reveal the ways that we can turn and grow and run into the arms of our longing, loving God. Let me leave you with this quote from Lilius Trotter that has encouraged me. I am seeing more and more that we begin to learn what it is to walk by faith when we learn to spread out all that is against us all our physical weakness, loss of mental power, spiritual inability, that we learn to spread that out as sails to the wind and expect them to be the vehicles for the power of Christ to rest upon us. It is so simple and self-evident, but so long in the learning. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.